So you've kind of, you're, you're a hybrid to some extent. We are, yeah, which is really unique. And it's sometimes hard to explain to operating partners that we're not there to displace them. But it, it's actually, we like it because the people who do understand it are, are recognize that it's a belts and suspenders approach. Did that thought process come a little bit from any of your fund investors saying, you guys need to do something different? Well, it, it goes back to my comment earlier. When we were at Carlisle, you know, we, we tried to look in our crystal ball and we said, gee, you know, over time, these pension funds are going to revert in some form back to where they were in the 70s because these private equity firms are taking a pretty big slug for just being an intermediary. Mm-hmm. And so we set out to be this hybrid. And it has been helpful in raising capital because pension funds, endowments, and we're... you got to have a hook, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it really is true. I mean, we're saving them right. money by not be, having an operating partner on a reasonable portion of our deals. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co-Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that. And then we devise a three-year plan potential for our second meeting. Then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Welcome to episode 47 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest today is Lacey Rice, who is the co-founder of FCP, formerly known as Federal Capital Partners, a real estate private equity firm and operating company located in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Interestingly, this is my third episode with a private equity firm founder, Earlier episodes were with Bill Jaynes of Iron Point Partners and Ben Miller of Fundrise. And I encourage you to listen to those episodes to contrast it from the backgrounds of, of, of FCP and, and Lacey. So Lacey grew up in West Virginia and was 
son of, a, of an attorney who was a labor lawyer, and he thought maybe that's what he was going to do. He went on to Mercersburg Academy in Pennsylvania and then off to Princeton University after that on his sports prowess, being a football and lacrosse player, and he talks about that. Then he went on to chemical bank, banking, thinking that let's do that to, to see whether business or law makes sense. And he decided that business was more interesting. He went on to Harvard Business School after that, subsequently went out west for a business venture, then came back east to join Alex Brown, then Carlisle, where he met his partner, Esko Korhonen. Two of them formed a venture with Federal Realty, which didn't work out. And then another venture in the broadband world that didn't work out. So they were deciding to go back into real estate at that point, And they started their company, Federal Capital Partners, with Alex Marshall. Grew the firm to the point where they were buying one-off deals with Angelo Gordon and decided to get into the fundraising business and brought on Tom Carr who had recently left Car America when it was sold to Blackstone. So Tom helped them with the institutional marketplace in New York and started raising funds. And he's now there now on their fifth private equity fund and have invested several billion dollars in a variety of projects, properties, which they talk about. This is a unique platform in that they are both an investor debt and equities, as well as an operating company. So it's a little bit unique. Most firms do both, one or one or the other, but not both. So uh, Lacey talks about why they did that and how they did it, and it's very interesting. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Lacey Rice. Lacey, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. That's great. So, Lacey, could you describe your role at uh, FCP and your focus day-to-day now? Sure. I'm one of the founding partners, along with Esco Corhonen, and uh, we now have five partners, which include Alex Marshall, who's been with us quite some time, Jason Bondarenko, and Garland Faced. I spend a lot of my time focused on strategic direction of the organization, investment decisions, and day-to-day, I'm in charge of the residential development team, the debt team, and a new initiative in impact investing in multifamily. That's great. As I recall, when you, when you started up, it seemed to me you had two directions as a company. You were in the multifamily space and you were in the commercial office primarily space. And that seems to be a predominant theme of the company over the years. Has that changed at all or is it pretty much still the predominant theme? No, our strategy has been to be product specialist in multifamily and office but within those sectors to do as much as we can. So we can provide capital for equity for outright purchase, equity for a venture purchase with an operating partner, preferred equity, mezzanine, or other forms of debt. Mm-hmm. So you're deploying your capital in a, in a broad, different array of strategies, basically. Well, but just in those two sectors, those multifamily two sectors. and office. So let's uh, let's flip back the Wayback Machine here and uh, <laughs> go back to your origins, Lacey. I understand you grew up in West Virginia. I, I did, Martinsburg, West Virginia. Huh? So what did your family do? What 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 did what did you do growing up? 
Well, let's see. My, my two great-grandfathers were a miner and a farmer. Really? And both of their sons became lawyers. So my grandfathers were lawyers. Uh, my father was a lawyer. My brother was a lawyer. And I always thought I was going to be a lawyer until one day in my senior year in college when I started to practice for the LSATs and realized this A isn't any fun and B, I'm going to get baked if I have to take this exam. So I, <laughs> I looked around and all the smart people were going to New York working for banks. So I jumped on that train and went to New York and that, sure. that changed the direction from, yeah. finance, from being an attorney to getting into finance. Yeah. So Martinsburg is, I guess at the time you were growing up, it was probably pretty rural out there, right? Yeah. 12,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. So was it kind of a farm environment there where you were or what? Uh, yeah. We're at, known as the gateway of the Shenandoah Valley. So we sure. were the produce belt for the mid-Atlantic for a lot of years, a lot of apples, peaches. Right. And uh, we also have the B&O Railroad that goes through there. So it was an interesting combination of a rural farming environment but an urban core that initially was into textile and manufacturing and then mining became, too, right? Wasn't that in that neighborhood? Not, not, there was uh, mineral mining, but not coal mining. So lots of limestone because the Shenandoah Valley and the Martinsburg area in particular are rich in limestone. Mm-hmm. But an interesting dichotomy growing up of the farm kids and the downtown factory worker kids. Uh-huh. So your dad was an attorney. What, what did he practice? Was it just general, you know, legal work for the community or what, what kind of things did he do? He, like his father, was an expert in labor law. And my, ah, my grandfather got into labor law in the 1930s, which was, I think, equivalent to being a tech lawyer in the 1990s mm-hmm. uh, in West Virginia. So they had a... The mine workers? Primarily mm-hmm. mine workers and other factory workers. And so they had a unique niche practice that provided good, stable income. Interesting. Interesting, I imagine. So they were advocating for the mine for the workers primarily, or the the other side. The other side. Yeah. <laughs> so for the companies. Uh, so yeah, my dad tells stories of staying in hotels where rooms were bombed and threats were made, and uh, oh there my was goodness. Some, some rough days in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. You looked at that growing up and said, hmm, "I'm not sure I want to do this," or you were gung ho until college, basically on that. I was pretty gung-ho. I thought I was going to go back and try to be a big fish in a small pond. And I love West Virginia and still do. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So did your mom work or was she a home homemaker or what? uh... She was a teacher like like her mother, like my mother-in-law, like my wife. But she gave that up when we were young and focused on my brother, sister, Mm -hmm. myself, our Five or six dogs and all. Any other children. family influences that affected your your life going forward that you think about? You know, my my dad had a big influence on me and my grandfather. My grandfather lived with us for quite a while. His wife died when we were very young, and it was great to have multiple generations in one house. Mm-hmm. So then you went on to Martinsburg Academy. I understand. So what what was the thought process behind that. Yeah. In in eighth grade, I was doing well in sports. I was doing okay in school and I was doing really well in trouble. So my my dad recommended I talk to my coach who I thought would say, stay here in Martinsburg. We need you. And my coach said, you are one of the lucky people to have an opportunity to get out of this town and go to a good school like Mercersburg Academy. 
if you come back next year, I'm going to bench you. So that was a seminal, uh, seminal and moment. This is lacrosse so, that you're so, talking about, right? Well, you know, in those days, I played kind of everything in, in eighth sure. grade. But I, I went to Mercersburg and changed my life in many ways. I introduced me to lacrosse, uh, but I did play football, wrestle, and run track. So I was kind of into all sports. But great institution, great place, and really prepared me for college. Did that change your orientation to life a little bit, uh, going there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm still very close to my Martinsburg friends, but unfortunately, in most cases, their trajectory didn't change from eighth grade, and luckily mine did. So, you know, the private school environment, was that, contrast that with your friends that stayed behind, or if you still have any that were, did that, you think that would have made a huge influence if you'd not gone there? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I was probably not hanging out with the right guys. And I stay very close to my Martinsburg friends, unfortunately, many of whom are deceased for a variety of reasons or have not had nearly the good fortune that I've had. And, you know, I, I look back on life and it's where you get to where you are based on a lot of incremental decisions. And the incremental decision to go to Mercersburg led to the incremental decision to work harder in school and to focus more on the right, the right habits and not well, the wrong you habits. You obviously did well there because to go to Princeton University from there is, is an achievement. So uh, talk about that. Was it athletically in, inclined as well to get there? Yeah. M- I mean, much like your son, I was lucky enough to be recruited at a number of schools, primarily for lacrosse. I also was recruited at a few schools for football. And I uh, went to Princeton and played football my first year along with lacrosse and realized that if I stuck with football, I might play a little bit and I might get killed. If I stuck with lacrosse, I at least wouldn't get killed. That turned out to be a good decision as well. well Princeton had a pretty good lacrosse team back when you were there, weren't, didn't they? Yeah, luck, I mean, unfortunately, we didn't have Tierney as our coach. He came right after it. But that was in some ways good news because he then won two or three or four national championships. And everyone associates our time there with his success there and those weren't directly correlated but we'll take credit for what we can <laughs> we, had a, we had a pretty good team we were competitive in the top 10 or 15 nationally so was it a was it a culture shock to go from mercersburg to princeton or was it a pretty easy transition for you well I, you know i assumed that i was the dumbest person to get into princeton until i showed up for freshman football and spent a couple of days in the locker room. And I realized <laughs> that I may be at the bottom, but I'm not alone. And I had some of my very best friends through life are, are guys I met during those days when you show up. Sure. And in that era, there was no orientation. You just right. showed up. Uh-huh. And if it weren't for some of the guys in the locker room, it would have been a lot tougher to adapt. But yeah, academically, I felt well prepared because of my experience at Mercersburg and through sports, had a lot of friends somewhat instantly. So it was a good experience. Yeah. It's interesting, as you pointed out, my son swam there. Mm-hmm. And the culture of the athletic program at Princeton was incredible there uh, that I sense. Yeah. Just a real collegiality and lifelong friends develop out of that, that cohort, it seems like. No question. And I don't think people fully appreciate what it means to play Division One or even Division to athletics and work hard and perform well at school. Yeah. It's like having two full-time jobs. Yes. I'm sure your son has never been as busy as he was in college. Well, he's actually starting a new company right now. 
is CTO of a startup, so he's pretty busy. (laughs) But it's good training when you got to get up at 6 a.m. for practice and you don't shut the lights out until midnight. Yeah, and he has an engineering school at Princeton, too. That's really hard. No easy task there. So anyway, so what was your focus there? What program were you in there in school? Uh, I was a history major thinking history. I was going to become yeah. an attorney and that we didn't have any pre-law classes. That was I'm surprised that they didn't have pre-law kind of ordained there a little bit. Uh, liberal arts college, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, that's true. Yeah. Because they, they didn't really have any professional schools at Princeton per se. So they didn't have medical school or, you know. No, the engineering schools. The other engineering schools do, Yale and Harvard. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting, yeah, that was one differential that we saw, interesting. So then you left, you graduated from Princeton, and then what? Well, as I mentioned, I jumped on the train with all the smart guys and went to New York. I was lucky enough to get a job at Chemical Bank, which was the fifth or sixth largest commercial bank back in those days. They were investment banks and commercial banks, and and had a great time. One of the real advantages of the big commercial banks is they had year-long training programs. That were taught by right. business school professors from Columbia, uh, J.P. Morgan, yep. City Chemical, Manhattan. All had these programs, and it was like getting a mini MBA. So we went to class every day for a year. It's like credit school, basically. It is, yeah. yeah. And you know, I, I think that's probably the most important training I've had for business was learning finance from a banker's perspective, mm-hmm. because. You know, bankers are always thinking about defense and structure. And so, mm-hmm. so that was an outstanding training. And then chemical, they gave you the opportunity to go to a regional office or stay in New York. And I was lucky enough to get selected to go to the San Francisco office. And I'd never been to the West Coast. So I showed up in San Francisco with, you know, polo shirt, short, shirts and shorts and realized it's not it's not the, the beach blanket bingo environment I thought. It was a little cooler than I anticipated. Not Los Angeles. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so I, I quickly learned um, how to adapt. But I had two great years in the San Francisco office for chemical and then decided uh, it was time to go to graduate school, looked at doing a JD MBA, talked to a few people who had done it, all of them said. Why did you think you needed to go get your MBA? Well, I, I was morphing slowly from the attorney thing, but I still wasn't sure I wasn't going to end up back in West Virginia as an attorney with my father. So I thought the MBA would be a nice thing to have. And everyone said, um, who had gotten a JD MBA that I talked to said I, they were all going into finance or business. Virtually no one was going to law. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'd just get the MBA and give up on the, the legal thing. career. Yeah. Which for me was a great decision. I don't regret it in the least. So then you went back to the East Coast, then. then. Yeah, yeah. I went to to Harvard and had a great time there. Why HBS instead of other schools? Well, I applied to two. I applied to Stanford and Harvard. I got waitlisted at Stanford, and then I found out in the middle of summer that I'd gotten in. But by that point, I was committed over in. Well, no, I wasn't really committed because I, I thought there might be a chance. But I was in. China, I took my backpack, and for a thousand bucks, you could nice. you could go around the world with TWA as long as you kept going in the same direction. So I sold my car, and I was so low, and I called my dad, and he said, you know, I got this letter here from the Leland B. Stanford Junior College, 
is that Stanford University? I said, yeah, that's what they're, they're a junior college. It's not a, it's not a convention. So he said, yeah. so I said, well, open it. And it said, you know, congratulations, you, you got in. And, you know, I was, I'd been in the Bay Area, had a lot right. of friends that were there. Right. I had a, my, my San Francisco roommate had just gone there the year before. Mm-hmm. So I told my dad, I think, I think I'm going to go to Stanford. And my dad, you know, great guy, worldly guy as much as he is, said, you're not going to go to Stanford Junior College if you can go to Harvard. <laughs> uh, so we had a long, long discussion on a payphone from China and a few other discussions subsequently. Uh, ultimately, I ended up at Harvard. So, and it was a great decision because I'm, you know, I'm here in the East Coast and I think had I intended to spend my life on the West Coast, Stanford might have been a better decision. I think you're the fourth or fifth Harvard MBA that I've interviewed for this thing. And it's a, it's, I think the largest business school, I think, in population, I believe, in the country, isn't it? It's It's a big class. It's about 850 or at least it was. And one of the reasons Stanford was hard to get into because it was only 250. Yeah, and they probably have a more diverse curriculum as a result, I imagine, because they have, you know, that many more students to take care of. So my son went to Kellogg, and it's not quite as big a cohort, mm-hmm. so they, but they still had a pretty diverse curriculum, which surprised me a little bit. So then you worked for a company called Haas and Haney after the school? So uh, as, the, as the world turns, I had offers to go to work in New York for investment banks, but my college girlfriend really wanted to go to Berkeley Graduate School and wanted me to come back to the West Coast. Is this a Princeton girlfriend? Been. Yeah. Okay. And so I told Morgan Stanley and Solomon Brothers, no thanks, packed up my truck and drove out to California in June so of back to California. 1988. And when I got there, I started to interview, but it's summer and so it was, things were kind of slow. So I started spending time with a buddy of mine who went to business school with me, was an entrepreneur head to toe. And he had discovered that there were parcels just outside Silicon Valley that had been created in the 1910s for Sears and Roebuck so that they could give people a deed to property in the redwoods of California if you bought a refrigerator. And there were thousands of these small lots that were just 15 minutes from Silicon Valley, but they were all fractured ownership, or they were you know, distributed ownership. And San Mateo County had just put all the assessor's data into an accessible database. My friend Tad had a bunch of IT friends, which were somewhat rare back in the 80s. And so we got them to help us dump that information onto our Apple Macintosh computers. We had first generation Apple Macintoshes. Wow. And we started junk mailing these owners and they lived all around the world because these deeds had been created a hundred years earlier. And the trick was if we could find two parcels side by side, it was that you could put them together and get a legal parcel because each parcel was 50 feet by a hundred. But if you oh had two, goodness. you had a hundred by 50. And we had a tremendous response rate most of the time from people who said, I didn't even know I owned this property. So within a year, we bought and flipped enough of these properties to, we think, you know, eclipse what anybody in our business school class was making, working on the street or for McKinsey or Booz Allen. And that grew into 
flipping land in the Central Valley. And my partner, Tad, had been kept the Stanford golf team. Golf course communities were in big demand at that point because of the golf right. digest yeah. projection that sure. demographics were going to drive it. And that was a great way to get lots of groups in California because they wanted, they needed to see open space. So we quickly went from these 50 by 100 foot lots to seven, eight, 900, 1100 acre parcels for master plan communities. And we were, we were within three years kind of- What was the nature of your enterprise at the time? We were Woodside Partners. Woodside Partners. Because Woodside, California yeah. is where we started, just outside Silicon Valley, where these properties were. They were in Woodside. That's one of the wealthiest communities, I think, in, in all of the Bay, yeah. the Bay hence Area. The, hence the great inefficiency. If you could get these lots together, you could sell them for, you know, back in those days, $300,000, probably mm. a million and a half today. We were flying high. But ultimately, the real estate recession of the early 90s made it to California. California was the last state to really be impacted. And luckily, we you know, banked some money, but the land flipping business sort of dried up. You'd still be doing that today if that didn't happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, though. You know, at that point, I wasn't married, so it was easy to fly by the seat of your pants. Well, that's true. You didn't have obligations. Right. Right. So then in the mid-90s, things slowed down. My mom... Was uh, diagnosed with cancer, and I started thinking more seriously about getting back to the East Coast, which ultimately led to coming back and working for Alex. Let Brown. me stop you just for a minute before you go on. At Harvard, I assume that this is one of your Harvard buddies that you went out mm-hmm. and did this. Yes, with. that's right. Did you germinate a real estate interest at that time at Harvard Business School, or was it uh, uh, was it a bit? Yeah, I mean, uh, interesting. In the in the it, 1987, Trammell Crow Company was. Next to Goldman Sachs, the best place to work for MBAs as ranked by Forbes magazine. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, they had a standard package, as you may recall. You got a BMW two door that they would lease for you. You got like fifty thousand dollars of salary, but then you got a lot of commission, a lot of upside, and the real estate market was very hot. So, uh, one of, in addition to opportunities to go to the street, I had the opportunity to work for Trammell Crow either in Boston or here in DC for a guy named Jay Donegan, who yeah, is certainly a legend of real yeah. estate and Pete sure. Henry on oh, the retail side. Oh. Legend. So I didn't take that job. For better or worse, a good friend of mine from business school did take the job. And he had two he had two or three great years like we had in California. And then and then the whole thing crashed. fell apart. Yeah. Interesting. So interesting. That was, yeah, you know, it was the germination of real estate then. So you go out and have this venture, and then Woodside kind of goes away. And then what happens? Well, luckily, my, my partner, Tad, and another guy named Mike Melbourne, who was our partner, when we had we sort of merged into this group called Haas and Haney over time. Melbourne went on and created from that group Discovery Communities. So they have some of the premier resorts around the world. And, and if you uh, I went on that website, Trace Amigos, Oh, yeah. There's a Mike Meldman is one of the three sets of initials oh. along with George Cloney and oh. Cindy Crawford's husband, whose name I'm forgetting. So Meldman became quite the celebrity. Tad's done quite well. And, you know, um, so you're moving back here. Tad, with you're, you're, he's still with them? They, they parted ways, but uh, they both continued in the land development business. Mike doing more of these golf course and master plan resort communities and Tad doing. Yeah, I mean, the Hassan Haney is a long heritage apparently as a company it, it yeah it was a name that was able that another guy who was involved bought basically for not a lot of money because it had done a lot of the 
development in Hawaii in the 50s right. and 60s once right. the Jets were, came into play. Mm-hmm. So it was a name, but we were really the company. So then, so then what for you? I mean, you were about to tell me what you did next after asking. Well, uh, well, then I started, you know, looking for ways to get back into the DCMSA because it's yep. close to right. Martinsburg. Uh-huh. And one of the discussions I had was with Rob Stewart, who I'd met at Princeton, who was then an analyst for JPG. And, uh, you know, the, the Bay Area. Was this after his Bavermo experience? Or, uh, yes. It was. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And he and he and Brian Coulter, I think, were the two analysts. And Working we for were Mike all, Glosserman. And, yeah. And they, they were, I'm sure they were associates by that point, perhaps. But they were generally down on the bottom end of the, the scale. And there really weren't many folks there because this was 1994. And a lot of the companies had laid off folks. And I remember, you know, I was trying to meet people here while I was still living in California. I remember going to talk with Chip Ackridge and, you know, there was Chip and two or three other people and about 50 empty desks in their office. It was a really depressing the time. The early 90s were tough. In D.C., mm-hmm. which was, you know, the Bay Area at that point, and I think still today, it was such a land of optimism. I mean, every night you'd go out to a bar, you'd see somebody who just made a million dollars on an IPO being the 75th person on the ladder. I mean, just... <laughs> And everybody had a business and an idea and a plan. And Washington was still largely, you know, real estate people, attorneys and doctors. And government. And government, right. And the tech boom hadn't really kicked in. It was just beginning to, which reminds me, coincidentally, I think the same time I came back to, to meet with Chip and Rob, I ran into a friend who was at Kleiner Perkins, a big venture fund at a restaurant downtown and, and they were having a party. And I said, what's going on? He goes, well, we just went public with this company. And I said, oh yeah. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Here, this year, this is Steve Case. Meet Steve Case. And well. <laughs> yeah. And I, it didn't mean anything to me, uh, right, but um, sure. obviously it became quite a, quite a driver of the economy here. Of course. So anyhow, after working and looking around at one of the places that gave me an opportunity was Alex Brown in their Baltimore office. In the real estate division. Real estate investment, investment banking, bank. primarily raising money for REITs, which were, as you may recall, in the mid-90s, you know, they were all, people were recapitalizing private real estate companies, like the Carr family. And my, so you were involved in the up-REIT uh, surge? Yeah. Okay. Yep, and follow-on offerings for those groups were an active business and a great niche for Alex Brown. Mm-hmm. And then, like Mason, got involved in that business too, pretty yep. actively. Yep. Bob Frank was the that's right research analyst there, yeah. and I was a leg at that time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it was interesting to see an earlier podcast guest I've had, Bill James of, mm-hmm. of Iron Point, was involved in the car IPO when they when they rolled up with the Bass family. They they were early on pioneers in the upbreed model, along exactly. with Sam Zell. Exactly. Right. Apparently. Yeah, and then the REITs really bailed out a lot of developers. Smith is another one, yeah. of course, here in Washington. So mm-hmm. that went on. So you did that for how long? I was there for a couple of years, and I really had the desire to get back more on the principal side. Yeah. I knew Carlisle was working on a private equity platform for real estate. They had not... Only a few years before, I think, it launched their first fund, which was seven or eight hundred million dollars. 
And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to go work there, which is where I met Esco. Mm-hmm. So Esco and I worked for a guy named Gary Stevens, who was brought in from Artery to try to create a real estate fund out of what had been a sort of fragmented real estate initiative that was largely just deal by deal. So smart, young, aggressive guys like Esco would go out and find an opportunity, bring it to David, Bill, and Dan, and then they would go raise money on a one-off basis for it. And they wanted to move to a fund model. Were they in the fund? They weren't in the fund model for their for their private equity at that point, or, or that yeah. was before the fund model was even created. Then, well, yeah, it was being created, so they were trying to staff up for that team. So David so, hadn't at that point gone worldwide to start raising capital for, for the fund at that point. He just one off finding for deals, basically. Yeah, it was really. I think Dan ran the real estate group, right? And he was. With the guys, I mean, if you talk to Esco, they would find a deal, and then they, they said, you know, the answer was, okay, great, go out and find the money. And Carlisle would help open doors, but it was a lot of effort, and that's why they realized they needed a real estate fund. So Esco and I were there for the raise and closing. Of the so you saw, it's interesting, you were at the early age, early stage of one of the first real estate funds created, basically, mm-hmm. in the country with, yeah. that, with Carlisle's uh, initiation in that business. So you saw how that worked, you saw the intricacies, and you saw some of the probably starts and stops of the process, I imagine, going through that, but probably took away some lessons from that. What did you learn there that kind of, you know, that you've taken from that and wanted to do a little differently? Maybe. Yeah, that's a great question. I think one, we learned, you know, the real estate private equity business is a great business and one that is a great combination of finance skills and access to real property. And we, Esco and I both like touching the assets and in addition to the finance and structuring component. Secondly, we learned it. it's a separate business. It, it's a, Running a private equity fund is a business unto itself. Investing in real estate is, is, is a different business. And you have to be able to do both of those successfully to make it work. And I think we also learned that we both like being a little closer to the assets. Uh, we were in that, at that time a pure allocator. So we would fly to a city, meet a developer, cut a deal and be 95% of the capital. You're just looking over their shoulders, basically, instead of involved in the decision making. Yeah. And I think we, we thought then or soon thereafter that over time, pension funds, endowments, were going to look to disintermediate the private equity funds and try to get more directly back to the operators which, as you know, is where they were before the 90s real estate crash. The pension funds and endowments would just directly back people like Mr. Carr in their projects. But after that debacle, they all wanted an intermediary. So, uh, you know, that was the time when the vision for our own fund began to germinate. And I, you know, our vision was that we would be a little closer to the assets, uh, be some sort of a hybrid between an allocator and an operator which, uh, you know, fortunately is what we think we've become at FCP, and it's yeah. been helpful. But before you started FCP, you did some other things. So talk about the evolution of what happened uh, at Carlisle and then yeah. how, it, how it evolved to FCP. It was, it was a bumpy road, but it's a good <laughs> story about the benefits of perseverance. So Esco and I left Carlisle, and we teamed up with 
Steve Gutman and the team at Federal Realty. I'd gotten to know them a bit when I was at Alex Brown because we did some offerings for them. And they were at the point where they were really rolling out these new urbanist town centers like Bethesda Row, Pentagon Row, and they were in the early stages of Santana Row. And we thought that there was an opportunity to bolt onto their business model a private equity component that would capture the office and multifamily assets either as part of the projects or that were immediately adjacent because federal at that point was 100% retail. And Steve and Ron Kaplan, who was the CFO at the time, thought that was a good idea. So the board awarded us $50 million to seed, I think, a $300 million fund. And we had primarily through ESCO been acquainted with some pension funds and endowments that were interested. So we had good momentum. Everyone liked the idea. So we left. We went to Federal. We were given a couple desks in the back. We sat next to Mark Ordan, who you oh, may sure. know is a yeah. legend in right. his own right. And uh, he, was, he was working on business ideas in conjunction with Federal as well. So we, we spent the better part of a year getting all the documents together, which is a big part of the process. And we're just about ready to go on the road to raise the fund when Steve and the board decided uh, to sell a significant portion of their core grocery anchored retail to Regency. And unfortunately, the market didn't respond as they anticipated. And I think the stock went from 24, where it had been for quite some time, down to about 16. And Don Wood had just come on as the new CFO. And they'd also just made a big commitment to Pentagon, or to Santana Row and a few other assets. So it was not a good time to be shut out of the equity markets. So we were told that they still wanted to launch our venture, but that $50 million that they'd allocated, they badly needed for other reasons. So Esco and I you know, read those tea leaves and concluded that um, it was going to be a long time and that, that we were, in retrospect, right. There was there evolutions that occurred after that that caused Federal to go in a different direction. So Esco and I were you know, a year out of Carlisle with no income and mm-hmm. and now trying to figure out what to do. So then at that point, it was 2001 or 2000. And every day you'd read the Wall Street Journal and see somebody else went public doing something you didn't understand. And everybody made a lot of money. So we thought that would be pretty fun. So we were close with Rob Stewart, Mike Glosserman. And Mike's son had gotten into what's called the Be-Like business with a company that he conceived and founded. And Mike's son was only 30. That would provide broadband access to office buildings. So we thought, well, gee, that seems to be well-received. Why don't we do the same thing for apartments? So we called up the five or six largest apartment owners, REITs, some of whom I'd known from my Alex Brown days, and said, look, you've got 100,000 units, and we can provide broadband and cable television. At that point, subscribers were worth something like $10,000 a door based on the Mm -hmm. mania of the market. So multiply 10,000 times 100,000, and that's the enterprise value you could create if you can tap into this because you effectively have proprietary control of the access. 
So we quickly got the REITs on board and uh, we brought in a guy who literally had invented the cable modem, worked at AOL, and we assembled a 60-person team. We raised five or six million dollars and we got Morgan Stanley to be our investment banker and we were on our way. We thought yeah. we were going to be public in a year. Yeah, and, uh, there it is. And it was just that easy. <laughs> but unfortunately, the, the tech bubble burst and we had a deal with DirecTV and they were, they were sidelined and everything became sort of protracted. And ultimately, you know, we went from Mike Esco and me sitting in the office, high-fiving, thinking we were going to Go public, go public to Esco and me figuring out how do you get rid of 55 employees and all of these servers and racks and all the rest. So that was uh, that was another disappointing year and a half or so, two years. That's ago. when I met you, I think. Might have uh, been. When, when Esco was, you know, when you guys were sitting in, I think it was, it was the address on Wisconsin, right at the, at the uh, where the Staples building is. Was, uh, yeah, yeah, there's now a Jeep dealership, and we were in the... Uh, very, very generic offices above it with uh, 45 engineers that did things right. we couldn't understand. Right, and right. So, so that, was, uh, that was another disappointing outcome. So it was at that point we decided, look, we just need to get back to real estate. And Alex Marshall was a young analyst coming down from New York looking for something to do. So we, we talked Alex into coming to work for us for free in return for a piece of the the pie, which, you know, I'm not, I think the pie was more an illusion than anything else. But the three of us then began to build a, this, our business today. We, we started buying office buildings. You came to our office. So you came to my office at Lake Mason. I think you yeah. guys just started, I mean, mm-hmm. literally. And I think you were bidding on 1331 H Street, as I recall. Don't ask Sounds me why right. I remember that. Good memory, yeah. And... And I'm going to tell you this, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to ESCO before, but Ali Carr, Carr Capital, was bidding on that property at the same time. So I had you in one day and Carr in the next day. And I looked at people I was working with and I said, okay, what do we do? Because <laughs> we couldn't work for both of you. That's easy. <laughs> so I ended up choosing Oliver Carr. And I ended up doing about $350 million of financing with him over the next five years. That's why, that's why you're the smart guy you are. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I said if there's any way I could have split the, 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 the pie at the time, I would have loved it. Or obviously, because I'd known ESCO at that time for eight years or so. Mm-hmm. He had just come here working for ING at the time. Yeah. You know, right after Kellogg, I think. Yeah. Well, we, we certainly lost more than we got, but we started to get some traction buying old beat-up apartments, primarily in Prince George's County, yeah. because... I showed you one that you didn't win, I remember. We went and looked at that high-rise yeah. in Laurel. Remember yeah, that's that? That's right. Deal? I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was one of the nicer properties we looked at. <laughs> but, you know, when we did the same thing on the office side, we generally found properties that other people didn't want and we bought them and fixed them up and on the multifamily side we were lucky enough to team up with a guy named Walt Donaldson right. so we needed somebody who could manage right. them and, and if there was wasn't ever he Grady management before wasn't it that's mm-hmm. where he, he was Dreyfus and Grady he's right. a Laurel native as you probably know he just passed away recently oh, I didn't know that after a couple of years struggle with brain cancer it's mm-hmm. really really unfortunate because he is not just by my estimation but by everyone who ever 
spent time with Walt. He's just an angel. He's a smart, hardworking, fun-loving, raconteur, man of the people. And we were just blessed that he agreed to manage our first property, but really to teach us the business of workforce housing, buying and renovating tough old apartments. And uh, it, it takes a combination of finance, you know, construction, and just passion for, for people. And Walt had all that. I mean, he, he, we'd go to properties and they're property management staff. And that's not always the best job to have it. Tough no. job in a tough community. And uh, staff just loved him, and followed all of his directions. And so we really learned from the master how to buy and renovate these properties. And we've taken that model and now expanded it all across the country. So where did you get your capital to start FCP and how did that form? You know? Yeah, well, after you turned us down, Baltimore, <laughs> and we were really lucky. Our, our good friend, Charlie Garner, who you know, yeah, I called Charlie and he said, I don't think it's right for us, but there's a group called Angelo Gordon out of New York. Really good people. and he Charlie was at Walker and Dunlop, I think, at that time. I think he? that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Right. And we went and met with Keith Barquette and Dana Rothman, and we Did you, saw I Wasn't died. Keith a Princeton grant as well? No, I think he went to Wharton. Oh, did go to Wharton. Yeah. Okay. All right. But he had this sort of different approach that we were looking for at private equity. They had a private equity fund, but Keith grew up in the real estate business, working for his dad, renovating old buildings, and you know was more of a real estate guy than a finance guy. But he ran Angelo Gordon's fund, which at that point I think was eight hundred million, which was a pretty big fund back in the in the early two thousands. And we became their largest national partner, we deployed $500 million of equity over about a three or four year period from 2002 to 2006. And we're lucky enough to put the brakes on in 2006, sell a number of properties. And uh, because we bought primarily income producing properties, predominantly multifamily workforce, we got through the GFC in great form and generated great returns. Yeah, that was so that was a great partnership for you. Yeah. So that experience probably opened, reopened the door of funds for yourself, right? To some extent. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it restocked the coffers because Esco and I were broke twice from our prior experience, <laughs> and uh, it gave us a track record. And you know, we we thought we had a track record from Carlisle and our prior real estate experience, but we found that you know it, it, it's very hard to get into the to raise your own discretionary fund. I mean, these, these organizations are giving us an incredible amount of authority to invest Did, in their And Angelo Gordon invest in your office investors too, or was it only in the multifamily side that they invested? Both. Oh, they did? Both, yeah. Okay. But for a variety of reasons then and now, we, we've always been about 65 to 75% multifamily and 20% office, 20, 30% yeah, office. Yeah, I mean... I remember mm-hmm. one of the first office investments you made, you you were occupying down in Georgetown, right? Yep. The flower mill. So, yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. It's just you, Alex, and, uh, and Esco and Cubes <laughs> in the, your first office there. I yeah, all, yeah, right? yeah. We had a refrigerator as well. So that, that was a big investment. We got our... It was kind of an open air kind of feelings, I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we got our furniture from Ross McWilliams because his brother... <laughs> He had a where his brother had a warehouse where Ross would put all of the yeah. 
furniture they used to prepare a condominium for display. Yeah. And we were so cheap, we said, hey, Ross, you got any of that leftover <laughs> furniture? So we had, we had quite an array of furniture in our initial office. But, but anyhow, it, it, was, it was low budget, but it needed to be low budget. But the Angelo Gordon experience was great. It gave us a track record. It gave us some money. And also during that time, we reacquainted with Tom Carr, who had sold his family company at the peak of the market. It was deemed one of the top three public deals of the decade. And, uh, you know, we, we caught up with him afterwards and said, what are you going to do? And he said, we have I mean, specific plans, but I, I like multifamily and I like what you guys are doing. So we were really blessed that Tom came over and teamed up with us. And Tom is a tremendous guy and brings a lot to the table, as is, does Esco. But one of the things he brought is he had the time to go out and really look for money because we were still, you know, living hand to mouth and we were trying sure. to staff up. But Esco and I were doing everything from soup to nuts. And so Esco really did a lot of the fundraising, but having Tom there to help balance out the office side of the business, which has always been Esco's expertise, really gave us the bandwidth to go start raising money. Well, also, Tom had, people knew his name on Wall Street. Absolutely. So he'd go up to New York. Oh, yeah. former chairman of Car America? Sure. No Anytime, question. I'll take a meeting. No question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we could go into Goldman Sachs and say, okay, yeah, what, yeah. what can we do here, right? And specifically, he had a relationship with APG, the Dutch firm. And uh, they were our anchor investor in our first fund and put a big chunk up and that got us launched. And, you know, we, Tom obviously had no legacy issues from the sale and we didn't have any from our Angela Gordon experience. So we were able to jump into the markets in nine, 10 and 11. So when you sat with Tom initially, when you were brainstorming him gumming, you got, was the fund idea right on the table at that point? Yeah. I mean, was that in essence why you wanted him on there to bring some more credibility to form a fund? Yeah, yeah, because we couldn't talk him into answering the phones and doing all the nitty gritty asset management work that we were. But you doing. weren't big enough to roll up into a read either. At that no, point. no, 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 no. That wasn't really a concept that you. Were right, and Angelo Gordon was the managing partner, effectively, of all of our investments. We had a couple that we didn't do with them, but um, right. Yeah, the, the goal was to. to well, Angelo Gordon, in my experience, and you tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, they're the Blackstone model, buy, fix, and sell. Correct, yeah. It's that kind of merchant type yeah. process. And they were a pure allocator, much as we were at Carlisle, but with a little bit, because of Keith's experience, they, were, they really were good at picking and working with operators. So you were in that mode. You were not mm -hmm. a long-term holder of real estate at that point. Correct. With and engine. what was, it was just following that just to get deals done or... Was there ever a thought that you might want to have, and it was the fund idea, the whole idea, oh, we now want to build wealth. It's time to build wealth for us. Well, the, the fund idea had been the idea since we walked out of Carlisle. Of course, just I understand. putting the pieces in place. And yep. uh, But, you know, do you want ordinary income or do you want capital gains? You know, is the question. Yeah, well, we were, you know, with Angela Gordon, we were holding two to five years. So we were getting capital gains treatment, but it, we weren't building... Well, real and real enterprise value. And right. I think that's the advantage private equity is, in addition to the promotes, you develop a management company and longevity sure. and control and certainty. Mm -hmm. 
So Tom obviously had done that mm -hmm. all the way to the public company per se. So understood that. So that helped you. Yeah, yeah, it was more tremendous. corporately at that point. To some right, extent. and Steve Walsh, who had been his head of capital markets, came over and that helped advance that group. And Tom was instrumental in hiring our CFO, who today is our COO, and one of the partners, Garland Faced. And he's been transformative in his contribution to the organization. So um, we owe a lot to Tom. Mm -hmm. So your first fund, FCP, you formed right before the crash in fall 2008. How did you feel at the moment with all this cash and markets in distress? <laughs> what was that like? Yeah, well, it was it was difficult because, you know, here we were, we had very few problems. We had money, but it was really tough to know how to, when to catch a falling knife. And in retrospect, it looks easy. In retrospect, frankly, anything you bought in general during the period would have turned to gold. But you've been through enough of these cycles to know when you're at the bottom of the cycle, it's really hard to rise above and, and have that perspective. It takes a Sam Zell-type character to do it. So we were still very incremental and conservative, which has always been our nature going back to banking in my case. But we were you know, able to find some some good opportunities and we just continue to do what we've always done, which is, you know, be very rigorous in underwriting, only work with really good people, be moderate in our leverage, always anticipate the worst case and prepare for it. And, but it, you know, we were able to get some deals done and those that turned out to be a great vintage fund. So the framework obviously is, you know, looking back in the late eighties, early nineties, you knew that, People coming out of the early 90s that had capital, if they had the right mindset, you mentioned Sam Zell. Mm -hmm. I mean, <clears throat> they made historic wealth. Yeah. Basically. So was that kind of your mindset in 2009, 2010? Ah, we've got this cash. Let's do something that, you know, we're, we're going to see opportunities like we haven't seen in a long time, you would think. so. Yeah, but it, you know, I've learned this very slowly, it takes a huge amount of courage, even in downturn, to jump in, even if you know what's going to happen. Go back a year, you know, we probably all knew that once this COVID passed that there would be all this optimism, but not that many people were willing to bet on it. And, you know, we were still... The stock market did. <laughs> it's yeah. just unbelievable what the stock market did. Yeah, but it's continued to rally, so it's... you. Still, anyhow, it takes a lot of courage in these markets. And we, I, I say, you know, in retrospect, we weren't brave enough. We did fine. We did better than fine. We did better than most everybody else. But I wish we had had the courage and wisdom that we have today. So you, you went on a buying stream with over 900 million invested uh, in about a three-year period there, roughly. So that, I mean... That's bold. I mean, that's not just, you know, sitting on your hands. You yeah. know, you were busy. So I, I don't know what more you could have done, I guess, is my question. You know, would, was there something you missed that you could have done? You think that could have done better than, than, than what you did? Or? I, yeah, I think, I mean, we were, we were slow to evolve geographically. You know, we, yeah. we initially sort of said, because we had young kids, that we wanted to be able to get home in time for dinner. So we would only go to markets where we could fly home. In time so did you have dinner. kind of a JBG mentality, stay in Washington and that's it? Or, or did you think beyond that at that point? You know, I, I saw this from my read experience. 
you either need to be, in my opinion, geographically focused but diversified, or product focused but geographically diversified. And that's the, that's the route you took. The yeah, we one. took the second route. It just we were slow to expand, but we you know we slowly have, and we've done it very incrementally and very successfully. We've yet to make a mistake moving into a new market. So that process began really with Fund Two and has continued through our current fund. Now, you made one investment that I want to get into a little bit that was kind of off the page. And I remember sitting having breakfast one day with Esco. I said, John, we just bought this subdivision in Charles County. I said, what? A subdivision in Charles County? What the heck is that? So explain that investment a little bit and why you made it at the time and what the yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. It it turned out to be an amazingly successful investment, but you know, from my investment banking Carlo days, I'd always been interested in public-private arbitrage, and so I frequently looked at small float companies and uh, had looked for a number of years at this company called American Communities Property Trust, which was a small float publicly traded REIT that was created by the master developer of the St. Charles community. St. Charles, along with Reston and Columbia, was one of three, give or take, 10,000-acre master plan communities launched in the early 60s with assistance from HUD. HUD was trying to encourage those types of master plan communities. So, you know, unlike Reston and Columbia, the, the founder, Mr. Wilson, had retained control of effectively the entire 10,000 acres or what was left of it by 2010. But to get there, he had to do a lot of things that ultimately compromised the company, one of which was taking it public. And as you know, it cost quite a lot of money to be public, particularly in this increasingly regulated world. So there was a lot of regulation, a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy that was layered on the operation of the company that we thought you know, we could get rid of if we could bring it private. And so... Was it a little unusual to see a land development play being a public company? I mean, Yeah, there was no reason for it other than it was a bailout structure for, for the Wilsons. I think in, they were public around 2001 or 2002. And then for a variety of reasons, they were in a, a tight position when the financial crisis hit. So they needed a solution. And FBR was brokering the deal through um, Jim O'Brien, who's now at Baird. And we won the bid. Interesting. Yeah. And that was a corporate buy. Yeah. We bought the stock. We had to go through tender offer, the whole process. And then we, uh, we took it private, which was, you know, kind of fun because it's just great to shed needless overhead. And they had a lot of great people down there, many of whom had been there for a long time. So we were able to keep mm-hmm. those folks. And we, we, what, we recognized the apartment portfolio, which I think was about 3,500 apartments, had a lot of value. And, but they had a lot of ancillary projects. They had properties in Puerto Rico. They had a piece of a home builder in Florida. They had a variety of other disparate interests. So we sort of cleaned up all that and ultimately sold the apartments and the residual land very successfully 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And so you have none of those assets left in your portfolio at this point? 
we, we still have two small pieces of land that are under contract for sale that um, were held up by an approval issue. Interesting. So, so you basically disaggregated the whole thing to some extent yeah. and, and sold it. Yeah, simplified it and sold Piece it. and pieces. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, it, it's interesting that you could see that. You had to have a vision for that up front because it's, it's a big mass of property to figure that out. That must have been an interesting thought process going through that. Well, and there were, there were then, I guess, 40 years of entangled partnerships and the rest. So it, it took a lot to untangle it. But luckily, we had uh, some really smart people who Mr. Wilson had hired who, who stayed around and helped us figure out how to unpack the, uh, the company. So since uh, you, did, you, you raised Fund 2 in 2012, expanded to North Carolina, opening an office there. Was that because competition was heating up in the D.C. market or just for diversification? You talked about it a little bit earlier. You, you had to go one way or the other, either concentrate yeah. or diversify. Why North Carolina? Why not Atlanta or Florida or, or uh, Southern Virginia or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first deal we did outside of D.C. was in Philadelphia. You know, It was, again, back to... Yep. Someplace we can drive to and be home for dinner. Alex was from North Carolina, so that was that was oh, one of the reasons to go and went there. Okay. And it was obviously a good market with Raleigh and Charlotte and the growth projected. So you know, we sort of tiptoed into that market. We we found some good multifamily income deals. We were lucky enough to hire a guy soon thereafter named Brian Kane, whose dad was one of the most prolific developers in the Raleigh area. And Brian knew everyone from childhood, so we were able to pull together some good deals through his assistance and it's remained a really strong market for us. And you know, along with Philadelphia was sort of a springboard for our geographic expansion. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to go back to a little bit is it seemed to me when you guys first started, you were more operators than just investors. Is that you still have that theme or are you more investors now than you are operators or kind of the combination of both? Yeah, that's a great question. We're unique. We consider ourselves an operator, but we also provide capital. So we buy probably about about 60 or 70% of our capital is allocated to deals where we're the managing member and the, the owner. And a lot of those are income producing value add properties that are brokered and, you know, the the work done is not comparable to new construction. So we feel good about that. We see those deals over our transom and we often bid directly on those. More complicated deals, more story deals, development deals, we almost are exclusively an allocator putting out 90, 95% of the capital. That's either as a joint venture partner, a MES piece, a lot yeah. of different ways of... Yeah, yeah, but in general, our people aren't doing all the work. Now we do have a small development team run by Matt Valentini who used to be at JBG who's just fantastic. About 60% of their time is spent overseeing deals where we are a passive capital partner. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with the development deal, you need to keep tabs on what's going on as, as Matt's team does. And in about 20, 30% of our deals uh, that are development related, Matt and his team do those directly. So for example, at St. Charles, we built three or four apartment communities with our team because it's here in DC. We own the property already. It just didn't mm-hmm. make sense to go bring in a, mm-hmm. a 
Mill Creek or someone of that nature. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you've kind of, you're, you're a hybrid to some extent. We are, yeah, which is really unique. And it's sometimes hard to explain to operating partners that we're not there to displace them. But it, it's actually, we like it because the people who do understand it are, are recognize that it's a belts and suspenders approach. Did that thought process come a little bit from any of your fund investors saying, you guys need to do something different? Well, it, it goes back to my comment earlier. When we were at Carlisle, you know, we, we tried to look in our crystal ball and we said, gee, you know, over time, these pension funds are going to revert in some form back to where they were in the 70s because these private equity firms are taking a pretty big slug for just being an intermediary. Mm-hmm. And so we set out to be this hybrid and it has been helpful in raising capital because pension funds, endowments, and we're... You got to have a hook, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's really is true. I mean, we're saving them right. money by not be, having an operating partner on a reasonable portion of our deals. Yeah, so they're investing with you as a fund, but they're really investing you as an operator <laughs> at the same time, yeah. which is interesting mm-hmm. when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and you know, we, the, the, I think the other side of that is we're not a developer that has a big team that right. needs another development deal or we have to lay people off. And that's one of the problems I think developers had that went back to the 70s and 80s is they just needed to feed the machine. So they need a new deal every day. So if Esco and Rob Stewart are so next from now Rob's no longer in private equity mm-hmm. because he's chairman of a public company, but let's assume that you guys were competing for fun, a fun client that's your differentiator. They're saying, okay, we're a development company. We're DC focused. This is what we do. We're, we're all these different product types. That's our story. Your story is a different. We're going geographically. We're focused on two product types. We're on the ground. We're active. We're, you know, operators, but we're also investing in debt and other, other features. We have different ways of looking at investing in deals. So if you were to set side by side, JVG and FCP, would that have been kind of the story differential? Yeah, yeah I think they were, well, they had a private equity fund. They were generating significant fees. Of and, course. You know, before they got into the fund business, they were a fee plus remote developer. We've always come at it from the other direction and said, right. look, we're an investor first. And right. if we can help the project by being boots on the ground, we will. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's what I wanted to get to. So, assuming your funds are closed, then is it your intention to keep FCP going indefinitely as a rolling fund manager, or do you have other goals for the company? Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, we we like being private. We don't envision see a public option. You know, we always admired firms like JBG that were partner driven and not public. That's obviously changed to JBG now, but you know, we thought it was pretty neat that. Ben Jacobs and Joe Gildenhorn and that era sort of passed the company on to Brian and Rob and Mike. And so that's that's at least how we set out to set the company up with the view that it would be a, a company that continued beyond our active involvement. But you know, we haven't really revisited that. We're too busy just trying to grow it. <laughs> well, to some extent, you, you think about law firms and how they're set up. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's partnerships. It's just kind of evolve over time. And yeah. partners age out. They cash out some form or fashion. And, and new partners are brought on and they just keep going, yeah. more or less. And that seems to be the Carlisle model, too. I don't know if that's true or not. but Well, they, they did go public. They did. Yeah, they're passing the baton to the next generation. And we've got a tremendous group of people here. And a lot of our time the last two or three years has been focused on succession and making sure that we keep our good people and they stay motivated. Mm-hmm. So I want to flip back to one other question. Sure. Um, your, your funds, you have five that are still active or have you closed out one of them now? We just Our first fund just has the two small assets at St. Charles. Our second fund, I think, has maybe one asset, third fund more, and the fourth fund we just mm-hmm. finished investing. And we've just... So there's a life to these mm-hmm. funds, right? Mm-hmm. And so and sometimes it's kind of this, okay, we're coming to the, to, the, to the deadline here. What happens if, as you say, you have two stragglers that, you know, for whatever reason you haven't executed an exit with, what do you tell your investors at that time? And they say, well, we want our money back. You know, what do we, you know, we, yeah. this is our horizon for this thing. How does that work at the end of a fund? You, you do just that. You go and you sit down with your investors. We have a subset that formed the committee that represents the investors. And we have a set of rules that we're prepared to live by. And that we always have, but we share with them our advice and then let them make the decision. St. Charles, for instance, where we, you know, we made, the whole fund has had a tremendous return. We believe that it made sense not to fire sale these two assets, but to wait until the approval cleared and then sell them. And the investors agreed. But if they hadn't, then we would have done whatever they recommend. You know, if, if you've had success, it's typically easier to get sure. waivers, as they are called. But... So talk about some hiccups. Have you had some hiccups in a few deals? You've had to have a few over the years here. Yeah, yeah, we've had, we've had a few. Luckily, we've had very few. I think one of the things that makes us think we've been too conservative is we, you know, when you've done 150 or so deals, it's okay to have had a few lemons. It doesn't really impact the numbers that much, but we've had a really high batting average. Gosh, let's see, mistakes. You know, we had one in Charleston recently, not too long ago. We, we bought a brand new or one-year-old apartment building, so about 120 units, with the potential that we exercised to build a 360-unit property next door. And we did our typical diligence on the building, but there were some construction defects that, you know, I think now, now we will peel the brick off during diligence and check. So that was, uh, that was an interesting process. We had to go collect all the contractors or subcontractors that were involved in the project and figure out who was responsible and work out settlements with them. The properties performed well despite that. But so Did that, you end up building the 360 units? Or yeah. You did? Uh-huh. Yep. And that, that's done quite well. And we, Settled with the contractors after a couple of interesting meetings. And so that worked pretty well. Gosh, we make small mistakes all the time, but we've, we've really worked hard to avoid the big ones. What's your office portfolio right now? Out of curiosity. Fortunately, Esco and Eric Weinberg, who is the principal who runs the office portfolio, have been very judicious in how we've invested and very strategic. So 
about four or five years ago, they recommended and we agreed that we should focus on the creative office niche, which is a little bit of a takeoff on the flour mill. You know, the flour mill, as you know, has a unique character because it's an old historic building. And in the last four or five years, there's been increasing demand for that type of creative space. So ESCO and Eric and then the commercial team have found some incredible locations and some incredible local operating partners in Atlanta, in Dallas, in Nashville, and in Raleigh, who either have or are uh, converting old buildings, in some cases building new additions, and uh, infusing open beams, big volume spaces, bringing in unique bars, restaurants to add a flavor and a character. And the demand for that niche has been good, both in leasing and on the sales side. So the preponderance of our exposure in office is in that type of property. What type of tenants attract are attracted to that kind of use, typically? We think, you know, the sort of millennially oriented tenants, tech, creative workspace, they don't want to be in a generic office building like this. They want to be in a place that has some character that's unique, some place that doesn't have to be on Main and Main, but you know, has to have reasonable access to a bars or restaurants. Interesting. Yeah. So that was uh, just a creative idea that you came up with five years ago, to, and we should kind of pivot and be very niche-focused in that product type. Uh, yeah, I mean, Eric and Esco, you know, have spent, it didn't just happen overnight. It took a lot of work and they do a great job. And Was we, there one kind of deal that kind of triggered that, wow, this is something we should really focus on, you know, kind of like in that, in that process? I read about one project you did in Charleston, which I thought was in the cigar. The yeah, cigar the box. cigar factory was maybe that's a good point. I, that was maybe the first example of that. We, uh, we, took a beautiful old building that's in Charleston that was right. a cigar factory, hence the name, and was a failed condo conversion. Really? Yeah. And the team here converted into office and we got some really cool creative tenants and did quite well. And it was a great urban renewal project for the city of Charleston as well. So was that one of the first example. ones that you did? Yeah. Yeah. And we've done, again, similar deals, Nashville, Atlanta, Raleigh. Great. We also, have, we've, we had great success, for example, with the, uh, the Dillon in Raleigh, which we did in partnership with Kane Development. And that took an old warehouse, the Dillon Warehouse, and added materially to it to create the most prominent mixed-use project in the warehouse district in downtown Raleigh. It's approximately 270 apartments, about, I think, 280,000 square feet of office, about 80 or 90,000 square How feet of retail, 990 apartments. How close is that the main, the main it, Fayetteville Street? Well, That's it's right. right in Raleigh, it's right near the rail station. And so oh, the okay. city wanted to revitalize the Amtrak station and the adjoining warehouse land. And yep. so we partnered with them to build a parking garage that would help the Amtrak station, and they gave us some help on the entitlements. So that's that's brand-new, state-of-the-art office, but it's in a cool warehouse-feeling environment, and Kane did a great job with the retail. So that's another example. 
There's some interesting old buildings in downtown Raleigh. In an earlier life, I was uh, in the development business. With a, we did a JV uh, with a developer who renovated old buildings and had uh, a restaurant business as well, a company called Empire Properties. It was kind of an interesting setup of how they were set up there with mm-hmm. those older buildings and mm-hmm. kind of doing exactly what you guys are doing now with older buildings, kind of creating this cool new space inside of these old structures. Yeah, and if you ever go to the Research Triangle Park, it's a suburban office at an extreme. So I think there is a demand for urban properties. And we did a deal in downtown Durham as well. Durham and Raleigh have a sense of place much more than RTP area. So turning to the real estate markets, pandemic has produced and accelerated significant impacts on some product types like office, retail, and residential. How has it affected your investment strategies, if at all? Another great question, and we've spent a lot of time and resources focused on this. Let me see if I can go through the list. On the workforce housing sector, which is the most prominent portion of our investment focus, it certainly had an impact on delinquency, but it had relatively limited impact on occupancy part because of the restriction on evictions. But interestingly, as we look at where we think we're going to end up, compared to 2019, our workforce delinquency rate essentially tripled from a little less than 2%. This is our, our bad, annual bad debt expense. Averages between one and a half to two. So 19, we were around between one and a half and two. And we anticipate for 2021, that number will be about three times larger. However, if we can continue to get tenants to file for funding from the government, we think that about two-thirds of that loss will be mitigated. So that's one way to measure what the impact is. And in our opinion, you know, if, if that's kind of the worst thing that can happen to your portfolio, losing an effect one percent of revenue—that's it's not such a bad thing. And so that portfolio is doing well. More and more people are moving into the workforce housing space. Cap rates continue to come down. We continue to find undermanaged, undercapitalized assets um, harder and harder all the time. But we do on the Class A properties. We we also uh, put about 20, 25 percent of our capital towards building new apartments. That business obviously slowed. We saw it slowing in eighteen and nineteen when costs were continuing to go up and rents were flat. So we and supply pulled, was going up. Too. Yeah. So we basically exited all of our equity positions, but we kept a number of pref and mes positions because we felt that by going to eighty five percent of the capital stack, we were well protected if there was a softening. So our legacy portfolio is in great shape, and Jason Ward and his team who run that group have been on the offensive for the last 18 months, really, since the early part of COVID, to try to lock up more new starts with a view that if you could start in 2021, you're going to be in a good spot. So we're really well positioned there. Occupancy in those Class A urban properties has dropped a fair amount as people have left their high-cost right. apartments to go right. live with their parents. But you know, having just been in Adams Morgan last night with a team for a celebration of COVID survival, it sure looks like 
young people are coming back mm-hmm. to urban markets. So we feel pretty I good about that. I was at Jack's Cantina last night. It was packed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we think we're well positioned in the class A side to get back into the development side and go long equity there. The office sector is a little tougher to predict. We feel really good about our creative niche. We think if, if you're going to, if you're going to occupy space now, you're probably less likely than ever to be in a generic building with a whole lot of people. So we think on a relative basis, the creative niche is, is a good spot. Overall office is tough to say. I'm just going to have to wait it out, but it sure seems like demand has taken a hit in generically. Luckily, we've diversified into these high-growth Sunbelt markets. and The job flow into Dallas and Atlanta and Raleigh and Charlotte is so strong that it's tough to gauge what adverse impact resulted from COVID. I think D.C. is a little, it's going to be a little tougher. Yeah, the, if you're an office landlord right now and you've got big rollovers coming up, it's a tough decision. Yeah, it seems to me. You know, and if you know if you run a small company like we do, and the first thing you're going to say to the, the landlord is, "What, what discount are you going to give me? I know you must be hurting." Of course. So, yeah, the leverage is certainly with the tenant. I mean, when your lease comes up here, what are you going to? You know? <laughs> Unfortunately, we. We still got seven years. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and then the and then the thing I was talking about with you and Esco earlier, I said, so what do you do with you know? You tell your people, you, you know, we're back in the office. When are you going to come? You know. Yeah. So well, we you know. we've been really excited since the first of June when Montgomery County opened up the office area. How many people are coming back and how enthused they are to be back and how they're remembering that being together is, is pretty important. It's important. Well, I think that the aspect I'm hearing is that, you know, how do you train young people unless they physically are in presence? Yeah. You know, it's hard to do it on Zoom. Yep. Teach Great. somebody the business to, from the scratch. You know, I mean, you could throw a spreadsheet at people and say, okay, here's, you know, analyze this for me. And, yeah. But there's more to it than that. And you, it, can, you it, can go and look at the real estate too, but you still can't, you know, really focus and have collaborative discussion and yeah. that kind of thing, right? And ours is a very collaborative business. On the other side, I don't know, there's a lot of different government jobs, but I think it's pretty significant that the government seems to be embracing work from home. Mm-hmm. My sense is there are a significant number of jobs in that sector that can be done almost as effectively from home. They don't, they're not as collaborative. Certainly any programming jobs or data entry jobs. Yeah, well, you can think about anywhere. think about the tech business. Mm-hmm. If you're a coder, you really need to yeah. be in an office. Yeah, so our, our sort of conclusion is that the impact of COVID, and particularly from work from home, is really industry dependent. It's not right. city dependent, right? But it really depends on who your tenant is and what type of work they do. So, as you're developing or investing in real estate or in office buildings going forward. Your, your thought process five years ago going into this creative space was actually in some way prescient in that you, you know, could, are defensive against what could have happened, you know, to make things more generic, potentially. But even, even before pandemic, you could see more and more because of tech, 
and Zoom and all the different technologies you have, why do I need to go in? Why do I have to face that two-hour commute every day, you know, and do all, I can work at home and do just as well. Work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, and Monday and Friday I can be at home and take my calls and do everything then. Yeah, and CB put out a great stat recently that more than 50% of work from home is not from home. It's from an airplane, it's yeah. from a cafe, it's sure. in your car. And we're all working everywhere all the time yeah <laughs> and everywhere right at the beach yeah so it was here <laughs> it was here before yeah exactly so you know but the you know the, the challenge of course is where and how you make investments and the costs of operating office buildings now just keep going up and the risks of turnover is so high and the cost of turning a tenant over it just, you know, it's, it eats up any profit that you have almost, you know? Yeah, the TIs and the commissions kill the deals. It's really hard. Whereas in multifamily, at least you have the churn. You don't have the churn cost is not nearly as true. Yeah, yeah. And we're trying more and more ways to reduce turnover by extending the longevity of our tenants and providing more services and doing more in the ESG and impact arena to try to make people stay, help people stay longer. You know, in sure. Europe, the apartment turnover rates are radically lower than in the U.S. because people stay longer. They, they, they are more rooted in rental housing. There's less fee ownership. It's also a cultural thing too, to some mm. extent though. Yeah. And this country has always been entrepreneurial and transient, more transient, it seems. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, you know, you talked a little bit about ESG. A few years ago, you initiated FCP CARES along with a robust ESG program. Talk about your philosophy behind both initiatives and how it's affected your company's investment strategies. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's been really rewarding. You know, as I said at the outset, wanted to create a different kind of private equity firm and, we were doing a lot of the ESG stuff before ES and G were connected. As I mentioned, you know, Walt Donaldson really helped us understand that you know, these aren't just you know, apartment real estate. These are communities and these are people and you really have to respect their lives. And the more you help them, the more they help you by staying longer, by taking better care of your property, by being more willing to accept rent increases because you put money back into the community, into their house. And so it's always been a part of our fabric, but under Summer Haltley, who's been with us 10 years now, we've really elevated it internally in our properties and also within the overall real estate community. And that, you know, we don't look for much attention. We sort of keep a low profile, but when it's something like ESG in an industry like commercial real estate, which has you know, always been predominantly dominated by white males. It's great to be a leader and to be showing people that, hey, you can evolve, you can diversify, you can open up to these things. And it, it doesn't, it, it only helps really. It doesn't adversely impact. So we're really excited about the progress we've made under Summer's leadership. And uh, we're hoping to extend it further. Particularly Talk about the, the program a little bit more in detail, what SCP Cares is and how you set it up and why. Well, you yeah. told why, but just a little bit more about it. Well, you know, FCP Cares is, is a charitable arm. So, Is it a separate enterprise? It's, a, it's an entity that 
works through a nonprofit to to give back. And so we raise money from ourselves, from some of our investment partners and some other sources to provide more services to our multifamily tenants. So that would be after school programs, you know, giving them providing backpacks and calculators and equipment for school, credit counseling and other programs of that nature. So FCP Cares is is the conduit through which we provide a lot of those services and particularly the funding for those services. But our ESG initiative really permeates the whole company, including this office. So, uh, you know, we speak frequently as a group about environment, social and governance and what we're doing to, to improve them. We've really worked hard on diversity. You know, we, we realized that um, while we long wanted to diversify our workforce, we, you know, we were always frustrated because we weren't seeing the candidates. We were just seeing people that look like us. And we brought in Cindy Josephs, a former Goldman Sachs HR person who now has a company called C-Suites to help us solve that problem. And, you know, we suddenly realized we were, we were, doing what everyone does. You go through your own channels. You know, your, your, our recruits would include kids like your son who would, because you know me, he would send an application. The schools we were going to, the schools we went to. So we've changed the approach to where we go. We've changed how we communicate, what we say. There's certain words that signal that you're open to diversity and some that don't. And you, you know, I, I thought everything was pretty generic, but I've learned a lot about how to expand the scope and it's really paying off that's great that's great so i mean are the, you have kind of a affirmative action type of approach as far as how many you know minorities you want to have on board and all that kind of thing yeah, we, we've set goals in terms of the level of diversity we've set goals in terms of how many people of diverse background we need to interview and before we can award a position again we've we've gone to different channels We've recently joined a incredible um, group called Project Destin. Yes. I interviewed Cedric Bobo. He's amazing. Yeah. That Cedric's great. He needs to get some sort of yeah. award for civil justice. Well, uh, I won't go in on this podcast. I'm not going to go into what I'm planning, but I've got an initiative I'm working on right now with several of my guests yeah. and I'm bringing in, I'll just say it, Leslie Hale is going to help Great. with setting something up at Howard University, hopefully this fall. Good for you. So it'll be, it'll be cool. Yeah. Well, Good. Need yeah. more of that, more Cedric Bobos. Exactly. Exactly. So other, other trends you see that may, may be opportunities going forward in the marketplace today. What, what do you see out there? What are you seeing other than what we already talked about? Gosh, so much, but it's also hard to capture. We're clearly seeing lower cap rates. We're seeing big capital flows into multifamily. In terms of opportunities, you know, it's it's hard to find them. The market's become much more efficient, and certainly there's a lot of demand to put money into real estate. Given what R and D are you thinking about? I mean, you you guys are creative animals. I mean, what what are you thinking about today? Well, luckily, what's different? Yeah, luckily, we two years ago hired a data analytics expert from Green Street. We surely admired Green Street. We have since we were in investment banking as a projective research group. And Matt Lariva joined us, uh, ran their data analytics group, and now is 
really set us up to a point where we think we're one of the leaders in data analytics in the multifamily and creative office space. What are you analyzing? Everything. And that started by analyzing demographic data and was able to pioneer procurement of cell phone data going back two years ago. And so we created an algorithm that allows us to really see not only where migration is going, but to what neighborhoods, from what neighborhoods, and the type. Because again, we, we focus on workforce and class A, and the demographic shifts are quite different between those groups. So that's given us a lot more conviction in making investments because we can drive our own thoughts on rent growth and are entirely dependent upon what a data provider So what is this what has this given you? I mean what a little different, more granular look at, at markets? What 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 has it given you? Yeah, it's given us a more granular look at submarkets. So we can really get a good feel as to what the Bethesda node is doing mm-hmm. as contrasted with the Friendship Heights node, both from a demand and supply and mm-hmm. jobs basis. Sure. It's given us uh, a lot more conviction in other areas. We've really spent a lot of time through that looking at cap rates and capital flows, along with Peter Linneman, Matt authored a really great article that debunked the long-held view that the dominant driver of multifamily cap rates was the 10-year treasury. And, you know, uncovered that really the dominant driver based on a lot of regression work is capital flows, which you kind of knew was important, but I always adhered to the, it's really 10 years. It's a, it's a relative spread to 10 year treasuries versus sure investment grade and non-investment grade bonds. So it's a different benchmark. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at capital flows into the U S and into real estate and into multifamily, it leads you to a slightly different conclusion than if you just listen to where you think the Fed's taking interest rates this morning because of inflation. Well, there's always been a disconnect between market anomalies and capital anomalies. Yeah. And that's been the, the if you're able to mesh those two, you know, like a guy like Sam Zell was able to do, mm-hmm. I mean, my God. Yeah. You know. You've, you've got it covered. Right, right. So the question is, you know, it's more complicated than ever now, right? Because of the different sources of capital and how mm-hmm. money's coming in and how people are looking at things. And the internet makes it more complicated because you have that much more data that you can analyze and figure, right. try to figure out. So parsing that is, is interesting and tough. Yeah, to well, Matt, Matt is a true genius. It's been amazing to see what he's been able to do in a couple of years. And it's really helped us. Uh, think differently about investments and hopefully make good investments. When you hire, uh, what do you look for in your perspective employees? That's another great question. You know, I think integrity is always the most important thing in any of course, business for any professional. So that's always top of the list. How do you determine that other than experience with, with people? I think, you know, it's, it's taking the time to meet with them, doing the research on their past and a judge of integrity is someone who already ha- who has good integrity. So I think we've developed a culture with the 65-odd people we have here of, sure. of all having, you know, thinking integrity first mm-hmm. and having a lot of common values and being very open. We, we're unique in that we have 
an open floor plan, ESCO and Alex and I all operate out of cubicles. Anybody can come by at any time. Information flows more freely. And so... So it's that much different than the flower. It hasn't changed that much. But so we, we look for integrity. We look for, you know, uh, desire, uh, passion. Yeah. So are you hiring right out of college or are you looking for people to experience now? We're large enough now we can hire kids out of college. We even have six college interns there in the back. Initially, we didn't have people who could tutor and train. So we had to we had to hire people with two or three or four years experience because we just didn't have the time to train people up. But now we're big enough that we have different tiers. And that's, that's nice. And so you're building your own corporate culture Mm -hmm. by doing that to some extent, right? It helps extend it. Yeah. We've always focused a lot on culture. So you have a, you know, a senior tier, a middle tier, and then an early tier to some extent, right? Or maybe even more than that. Yeah. Yeah. We have lots of tiers, (laughs) lots of tiers. So you have, in property management, do you manage your own properties now or do you outsource that? Yeah, that's a, that was another great decision that, that we made early on, and I give Alex and Esco a lot of credit for it, is we recognized we didn't want to be in the property management business. And, and like Walt showed us what we couldn't do. He was so great with people. He's the Lee Iacoba of property management, right? <laughs> we are much more interested in numbers and deals. We're not, we're not people managers. So, and we also saw that property management was shifting. When we first got in the business, I would go to the properties and go through inch and a half thick reams of paper that were generated by a computer Mm -hmm. to look at all the data because you couldn't really put it on a screen in any functional fashion. And that would allow us to figure out what are our forward vacancy projections look like and therefore what we had to, how we had to price the rents and the apartments. Now we get all that data and a lot more on our handheld instantaneously. And that has allowed the asset manager to effectively sit in the leasing manager's seat Interesting. on a virtual basis. Interesting. So it has allowed the property management team to focus a lot more on the interpersonal dynamics of the person in their office and the problems that the tenants are having, because that's the dichotomy that property managers have to work with. They have someone yelling in their ear about a busted sink while they're trying to sell to someone a wonderful place to live. So we, we are really, a, from all the data, we see a tech leader in information technology for multifamily. And it has allowed us to be a really good asset manager and therefore outsource to the Kettlers and the Bazudos and the Pinnacles, third-party property management. That's also helpful because we move from city to city. And it's very tough to have much hiring leverage if you only have one asset in a city. Whereas if Pinnacle's managing it and hiring the people and they have 25 assets, they can move people in or out of the various roles very quickly. Right. So that's a long explanation that we are asset managers. So if you're a tenant managers. in one of your properties, do they really even know that FCP exists? It's just or is the interface only directly with the property manager? It's primarily with the property manager, but yeah. we are all over the property managers and we really help ensure that that culture. So you do inject your own oh, feeling yeah. on the property. Yeah, and we're typically renovating. So our, our CapEx guys who are all here yep. 
are there every day and they're typically everybody's favorite person because they're fixing problems. <laughs> so we'll shift now to personal things, Lacey, as we wrap up here. What are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Oh, gosh, that's a great question, too. You know, again, I'm from a small town in a small state, and I feel like that's you know, every, everybody's got to have a place. And I've always been about community. My family's always been involved in civic things. So at the same time, I like to focus. So for the last 21 or two years, I've been involved in the Boys and Girls Club because I grew up in West Virginia and went to the Boys and Girls Club and saw what a tremendous impact it had particularly on at-risk kids who largely the kids that Boys and Girls Club served. So that's been a real joy to work with the Greater Washington Boys and Girls Clubs, 15 clubs around the D.C. area. And uh, luckily in the last few years, I've been able to become more involved in helping them recapitalize and redirect aspects of their their leadership. So I I believe a lot in giving back. I also do uh, work for charities in my hometown in West Virginia. How did you get into the Boys Club? I mean, how did you learn about it? Well, you know, in Martinsburg, if you wanted to go to a gym, you either had to figure out how to crack the lock at the junior high school, (laughs) or you could go to the Boys and Girls Club, which had a a gym and an old armory. So this goes back to your childhood. Yeah, yes. And and I mentioned I love sports. So uh, I'd go down there and hang out, and they had, you know, one guy, ping pong table, and basketball court, and a whole lot of kids. But uh, some of those... People remain really close friends. It's good. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? That's a great question. I think be more confident, you know, that things are going to work out. You know, I spent a lot of years eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, not knowing if I was going to make it. And, you know, that's 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 what inspires an entrepreneur and gets you up early and pushes you to work late. But, you know, maybe, maybe I could have been a little more confident myself, probably to be a little more aggressive on the real estate side. You know, we've been extremely conservative as a result. We've had tremendous returns, but we probably missed a few more deals than we should have. And that's one of the things we're trying to use data analytics to do is help us become more confident in our decisions. Mm-hmm. So I think those are two things that I would right. bring well, there. So and, I, and the other comment was getting the real estate business because it has led to so many great experiences, including getting a view. Well, thank you, Lacey. So, final question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Gosh, that's a great question. Go for it. Go for it. Just go for it. Just go for it. I love love that expression. Luckily, I did. Excellent. Lacey, thank you very much for for your time today. and enjoyed this very wide-ranging conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks, John, for doing this for our community. It's a great service. Thank you. Thank you. So we just listened to Lacey Rice of Federal Capital Partners, now known as FCP. And he shared some uh, of his stories of growing up in West Virginia and going to Mercersburg and Princeton and then on to his career, which was multifaceted up until he started his company in the early 1990s, right out of the, uh, the recession. And a couple of failures too, which was interesting. So as I do uh, week my weekly. I bring you on my co co host here, Colin Madden. Colin, welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks as always. Thought it was a, another entertaining podcast and learned a lot from from Lacey. And to kick it off, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the NBA. I think some of your listeners may be of age where they're 
either considering it or maybe actively studying for GMAT or GRE to pursue one. I think you mentioned on the podcast, this was your fourth or fifth Harvard MBA. And from where I sit, if you can get into Harvard's MBA program, then at any age, at any, you know, any position in life, you should probably do that just because of, you know, the network and the wealth of knowledge you, you could gain from that. But assuming you can't get into Harvard MBA and assuming you're in real estate, what what's your perspective on the value of actually going to get your MBA? And because I think I personally, and I think we've discussed this before, I was very close to going to get my MBA. I had actually applied to a number of schools, but coincidentally, when I was hearing back from schools, I also got an offer for my current position. So I tabled the MBA and I think it was a good decision, but I've always still thought about it. And people have actually asked me their opinions on pursuing it. So just wanted to get your thoughts. And I know that was a lot, but get your thoughts on that. Sure. It's an interesting question because it depends on the program. I think if you're looking for general business understanding, then there are the top five or six programs in the country. And then if you can get in one of those, it's one of those absolutely decisions, assuming you can afford it, mm-hmm. and assuming that you can get paid well enough on the back end to, to cover your costs and pay back your loans, et cetera. Because as you said, the network, the relationships, my son went to Kellogg, which is a, one of the top five programs in, in Northwestern. Harvard, of course, Wharton, you know, Booth, which is Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Stanford, as was mentioned by Lacey. So any of those programs, you get in there, you know you're going to have a phenomenal network coming out. Mm-hmm. So it's probably worth it. If you go down to the next tier, unless there's a really strong real estate orientation and that's your interest in, in, in pursuit, then you, know, you have to ask yourself seriously whether it's worth it long term. You know, there are some really good programs. Keenan Flagler at North Carolina, Darden's program at Virginia, Michigan's program at Ross. There's several really good MBA programs that are not in the top five or six. So anyway, it's, it really depends on the program. And then the other side of it is master's degrees in real estate, which is a whole different thing. And that right. is more focused for entrepreneurs and for people that are really focused on development. Mm-hmm. Because the, pro- the top real uh, MBA programs and even the second tier ones really don't have a development. It's more corporate, more aiming at, you know, investment banking or corporate real estate, or if you're going to place debt and equity, if you're in private equity or something like that, then yes, mm-hmm. you, you would probably go there. So if you want to go the institutional realm or the financial realm, I would say the top programs, if you're going to go in development, if you're going to go there and building properties or acquiring them at the, at the ground level, then I would probably aim at the more of the graduate programs in real estate today. Because I, I get the immediate benefit following certain MBA programs, but I think part of the other aspect is like 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, when you're kind of established at a firm, you may be the one front facing with investors and stuff like that. Do you think that aspect of an MBA is kind of forgotten in the initial value assessment? Because I get you could say you could end up at a, a real estate company and just kind of cut your teeth on smaller deals and get your experience there. But if you wanted to become a Lacey or someone of his caliber and he needs to raise a lot of money upwards of close to a billion 
in his oh, first fund. Do you think yeah. if that's your end goal, is, is it a different story? I think or, it is. I mean, as he describes, both ESCO and he came out of top MBA programs. Okay. Mm-hmm. And both of them came at it from the <clears throat> finance side. Mm-hmm. So they're financial guys. They're not, they're not ground up development real estate guys. Mm-hmm. So their whole angle to the business was from the finance realm. And so if that's what you want to build and you want to build a, you know, a real estate equity fund, mm-hmm. then yes, I think a top MBA pro degree and, and really focused on finance and get credit training and the whole thing that he did is very beneficial. Right. His firm is unique in that, and, and they decided to do that learning at Carlisle mm-hmm. to understand how to raise money in the fund side and invest as a capital allocator, as they talked about, but they also wanted to understand how to operate property. So mm-hmm. they're a unique player in that they operate real estate and they also invest capital separately. Okay. And, and what one thing he did talk about was that raising a fund is a whole different business than actually operating and, and investing in real estate. Right. And that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. So if you're anybody listening here that wants to think about raising an equity fund for it's a different process and a different takes different skills to do. And it's a different business, really. Mm-hmm. So they had the discipline and they learned it from their Carlisle years as well as their graduate business programs mm-hmm. experience. Okay. So just a hypothetical. Let's, I know your son, your one son went to, to Kellogg and your other son's more tech oriented and doing his own startup. But let's say one of them came to you at age 24. They've done two years of real estate work out of college. They want to stay in the real estate industry. And they came up with three, three options. One, Harvard MBA. Two, stay in their current position, work their way up, but get a real estate master's at GW or Georgetown or Johns Hopkins. Or three, buy like a eight-unit multifamily and run it on the side. What, what advice would you give if those are the three options? And I guess, what do you think would be most beneficial well, to, to, to furthering your real estate career? It's... It's a function of where you see yourself five years from now or longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you do a visioning exercise of where you want to be and how quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you have an opportunity to go ahead and buy a property like that and you have the money lined up for it or you have people interested, the School of Hard Knocks is a very good way to learn, as Gary Rappaport will both attest to. He never got a graduate degree and he did quite well. Um, right. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's that methodology. And I think in today's environment, you have to ask yourself really seriously, what is an MBA really going to do for you mm-hmm. long term? Is mm-hmm. there really a benefit if you know the real estate industry is your, is your gambit? Unless you're on the finance side and you're very sophisticated in your analytics, analytics and you're you know, expanding your realm to, to grow, to be billions in a fund, you know, Barry Sternlich type or something like that, then mm-hmm. I don't think an MBA is that beneficial, frankly. Okay. In the yeah. Long. 
Yeah, it's, it's a challenging question. And there's a lot of opinions on that, especially these days with the, the cost skyrocketing. And then- well, you, you work for uh, a guy, David Cheek, who, you know, he got his, where he got his undergrad, but I know he went to Darden and got his MBA right. there. Mm-hmm. He has a son that went to Harvard Business School. So, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, David, David will tell you that I don't think his Darden MBA helped him that much in his career long term, frankly. Right. Yeah, it's always interesting though because you you hear that a lot, but then you see guys like like that, and they do have an MBA. So it's like, well, and maybe it's times are different these days. And experience well, he started a Prudential insurance company, and they required an MBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and they were hiring back mm-hmm. in the 1970s. So that was an institutional investor. Right. So if you're going through that gate, then yes, there are criteria and, and that those are being relaxed a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as much, unless you're in investment banking, or you're going to go work on Wall Street for, for Goldman Sachs or something like that. You don't need an, an MBA, a top tier MBA to right. take a job today. Okay. So what do you need then? I, I know you asked uh, ask Lacey what he looks for in a job interview and it, it's integrity. And I know there's a lot of you know, human psychology studies going on with interviews these days. And there's cognitive bias when you're the interviewer. If you were sitting down today, trying to hire someone in their mid-20s, early 30s, what are you looking for? I guess the question is, is somebody with experience or without? I'd say with experience, like experience. Uh, yeah, the experiment, really experience checks what out. You're hiring, and then you're, what, you're, yeah, you're, what you're hiring them for. Are they mm-hmm. going to be an, an acquisitions analyst? Are they going to be a mortgage banking analyst? Are they going to be a development associate? Are mm-hmm. they going to be a, a broker, you know, learning the business that from that mm-hmm. realm? Are mm-hmm. they going to be an architectural training? You know, it's a function of how you're entering the business. So there's... Right. Probably as many paths as there are jobs, it seems like, you know, almost. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're talking purely operational real estate to, to you know, invest, become general investment in real estate, I think that an undergraduate degree with a year or two experience at either an institutional investor or a, a strong operating company or a, you know, a private equity fund or something like that where you got an opportunity right out of school to learn or a bank even mm-hmm. yeah. depending on what you're what you're interested in and you've got learned the basics of understanding how to value property and understand the basics of real estate mm-hmm. and you test them accordingly you give them something to assess that how much they know but you ask them questions about their character and you get three or four people at least to meet with with them mm-hmm. and ask them tough questions that are not necessarily intellectual about real estate, but about their character, but how they dealt with certain situations from an ethical standpoint, mm-hmm. really probe that side of it. Tom Bazzuto had a great expression when I asked him that question on how, how he hires. And he said, you know, I hire people that are good people mm-hmm. and I, that may be short on what their knowledge is. And I don't hire people that are really knowledgeable that are not, that don't, don't have the character that we think fits in our organization. Mm-hmm. I've made that mistake more than once and they don't stay along around very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the answer to that question. Kind of 
diverging. Lacey talked about data a lot. I thought that was very interesting. And I think it's, it's come up a lot in previous podcasts and I'm of the, of the camp that data is one of the most integral pieces of the future of any business. From my perspective, it's, it's overlooked out a lot of the time and all the large companies that, you know, people talk about from Facebook to Netflix to Amazon. They, I think they, they don't realize how much those aren't the companies they think they are. And they're truly just data companies because they are able to squeeze so much information out of seemingly, you know, raw data that, that might not have correlations for most people when they, when they hear about it. But data seems to be like a storm coming and it's, well, it's, 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 it's infecting. Problem. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a huge part of our industry. Yeah. I mean, it has been ever since I started back in the 70s, except the way it was, it, it was, it was gathered was by phone calls and, and on the street knowledge about mm-hmm. what's going on. Now mm-hmm. everything's computerized and on the internet mm-hmm. and gathered appropriately. And there's so much more quantity of data. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how do you call that quantity into, into quality? Right. And how you how you discern what's important and what's not, and how to interpret that data, that's the key. And Lacey hiring that data expert was an important thing for him. It's one of the probably the more important most important hires he's ever made they've ever made, according mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. Because as you say, the wave is coming of more and more analytics. Mm-hmm. And I think our industry is gonna require it's important to understand what trends are going on and what, because things are changing at such a rapid pace right now, it's mm-hmm. getting ahead of things, especially in the technology growth in real estate, mm-hmm. how everything's being impacted by technology. Right. Yeah. So we, we've seen Wall Street really get affected by algorithms and high frequency trading and more or less quants. I think quants is now a, a popular word that maybe 10 years ago wasn't even in anyone's vernacular, but there are data quants everywhere. Where where do you see the real estate industry coming? Do you think it's going to replace certain roles for someone maybe in college or in their 20s? How do you defend against this? And I don't know if it's replacing or reorienting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what somebody would have focused on to, to enter the industry 20 years ago it's probably not what somebody's focusing on today. Mm-hmm. So one of my ULI mentees is in, at graduate business school at Keenan Flagler, and he he went to he was working at Microsoft before as mm-hmm. a salesman of software, and so he understands the technical side, but he didn't understand the real estate. So he's learning the real estate side. But I Got said it. you should integrate your technical experience into applying it to real estate because the future of real estate may not be in the nuts and bolts of the land and location. I mean, Mm -hmm. we all used to say location, location, location. It may end up being technology, technology, technology (laughs) for real estate in the long run. Data is going to be more important than the location of the property. Mm -hmm. What you know about your customer and why they come to your property Right. It's probably more important than actually where it is. Yeah, so, I totally agree. There's a, there's a great for any of the listeners who haven't heard of it, but it's called a great book called Rethinking Real Estate. Yes. Um, 
it's fantastic. It's, and I, I just finished it this week and Thanks. someone, this, my, one of my colleagues, Kyle has been talking about it for all the whole year. And I keep, I kept neglecting to read it, but it's, it's excellent. It's excellent, but it's all about service and technology. And, you know, the times seem to be changing pretty rapidly and, well, you have to have a lateral <clears throat> thinking. He talks about lateral thinking in there. Mm-hmm. And you have to have that now. Mm-hmm. You have to look at things from different angles. Now, of course, people have always done that in some respects. Right. But now things are changing so quickly that you have to, you have to almost read ahead and understand what's coming. From, and data helps you gain a trajectory on some of those trends a little bit. Right ahead of it. Yeah. I always think of data like it's it's a magic eight ball. Like it truly can tell the future. I think humans basically are fairly predictable despite what most of us think. And you can really derive value out of information and trends and predicting what people will want, even though they may not even even know they want it. So yes, I was I was super excited to hear him speak so highly of data and, and their plan and it seems like they're trusting it very much. So that was that was one take I got from this. I mean, they're at a interesting place. I mean, he talked about the office market. I mean, if, if, if there's one place where you need as much data as you can possibly gather mm-hmm. is what the future of office building usage is in this country. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a real challenge, I think. Yeah. My sense is that land values are going to decline in center cities underneath office buildings because the numbers are going to be such that you just can't make. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't pencil to operate because people are not going to be using as much space. People won't be there as often. So it's it's a tough one. Right. So I think you have to use as much as you much information as you could gather about people's intentions and their psychology and I mean things that you may not think are important, you know, drive demand. In ways mm-hmm. that you don't think about sometimes. Right. Yeah, it's a lot to, uh, lot to digest when you're, you're thinking strategically because there is data everywhere from your building operation, operation systems and HVAC and leasing and market. So there's a lot, the lot thing, to take ex- in. Ex- experience is so important today. And so <clears throat> customer experience is the, is the key. And then I know that's not data driven, but a lot of some of it is. Jody McLean talks it on her podcast mm-hmm. about the distance of the trip that they have to each to her property, how much time people spend at each property and why they spend the time there mm-hmm. and the, t- the stores where they frequent the, the most often. All that, th- all that data they collect. Yeah. And, uh, and it helps them in their leasing and customer retention and everything else. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, those are, those are the main points I wanted to hit. Did you want to discuss anything else? No, I think what Lacey actually talked about was he's had a, a significant success with their funds. A lot of it is time, you know, during the global, global financial crisis, they were able to weather through with their first fund. And it was really mm-hmm. surprising to me, but they were very picky on what they chose to invest in. Mm-hmm. And they had patient investors, which was helpful. You have right. investors breathing down your neck. You got to get the money out. You don't want to do that unless you really understand what's going to happen coming out of a, a downtime. And as I said to him, Sam Zell mm-hmm. made the bulk of his wealth 
coming out of the early 90s by buying at 10 cents on the dollar in some cases some of the investments he made. Mm-hmm. And Lacey said at the end, which was interesting, I wish we had been more bold, right. more aggressive, and more assertive. We were too conservative in some respects. That might be a, a message for everyone out there. When, mm-hmm. you, when you think things are going to be interesting, go all in. Yeah. It also could be hindsight and revisionist history. <laughs> that's so, true. Yeah. You got you to weigh them equally. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, you know, if you're not going to lose your shirt, yeah. you know, hedge yourself a little bit, but be as bold as you possibly can. I mean, that's one message I picked up on all the podcast interviews I've had mm-hmm. is to be a little bit more assertive than, you know, mm-hmm. a 25-year-old self recommendation be mm-hmm. bold go for it that right. is what Lacey said at the end go for it don't stop <laughs> exactly. keep going so that's what I'm going to leave the listeners with today and thank you Colin for another good uh, postscript today and I appreciate it and listeners look forward to uh, our next conversation in a couple of weeks thank you 